0: It all started with a single decision of Lot. Instead of north or south, Lot chose to go east. And he chose to leave the company of God's people for a better life, for an opportunity outside of the promised land and away from the people of God. It was a decision largely based on the senses. It was a beautiful land. It was a land that was likened to the Garden of Edom, a land that was likened to Egypt, the breadbasket of the Middle East. But it was a decision that he made in a spiritual vacuum. Because the men of the Sodom, we or men of Sodom we read in verse 13, were wicked. And there was this ominous editorial comment that was inserted in chapter 13 that Lot went down there before the Lord destroyed Sodom. And so we've been waiting since chapter 13 to see what are the implications of God's destruction on Sodom. Why did that come about? And what would that look like? You'll notice as we go through this passage that the primary lens through which I'm interpreting this text is through the eyes of Lot, not so much the judgment of God on Sodom, although that's important in this count, but rather the main focus is on the man Lot and a summary of his leaving the pilgrim pathway. For in fact, that's what Lot did. He was in the covenant people and he left the pilgrim pathway. In fact, one author reflecting on the decision Lot made said that he was a man without a pilgrim's spirit. There's further emphasis here that I never saw before in these passages, but I think it's important that if you read your Bible, you have to read chapter 18 and 19 together. If you read the start at verse 18, one, you find there that the three visitors come to Abraham and he shows them a kind of hospitality. They don't have time to, today to compare the hospitality shown the visitors by Abraham, and then the hospitality shown the visitors by Lot And the differences and the similarities there. But those two passages are meant to be understood parallelly. But secondly, you might have remembered if you uh, were with us back in November. As we talked about Abraham's intercession for the people of Sodom. Or for the righteous in Sodom. That it says that the two men went down to Sodom. And Abraham stopped and stayed with the Lord. And he stood before the Lord. Well that exact phrase is used again in chapter 19 verse 27 where we read that Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. In other words, that phrase bookends this portion of Scripture. And really what it's telling us is uh, that one of the primary aspects of this text is God's answer of Abraham's prayer about the righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a pace also that you find in chapter 18 and 19 that is easily missed if you read the passage quickly. And I think the pace makes a point. The events of chapter 18 to the end of chapter 19, verse 29, unfold over the course of only 32 hours. What starts out with a leisurely afternoon meal as the two visitors or the three visitors come to Abraham, and then it quickly pastens to the two men leaving to go down to Sodom and arriving there in the evening... To all of a sudden waking up early in the morning, getting Lot and his family up and shooing them out of the town. To when the sun comes fully down upon the, the land that God rains down fire or sulfur and brimstone on the city. To the following morning, early in the morning, when Abraham gets up to the place where he had stood earlier and he looks down on the land. I think what it is trying to make a point to us is that the judgment of God, once God decides it will come, is inescapable and it happens quickly and this text unfolds in such a way that we realize that the judgment of God is devastating and it will come to pass in his time there's an important aspect I think of this too that uh, in this chapter beginning starting at verse um, 15 of chapter 19 and going to verse uh, 22 you find the word escape used five times It's clearly a reminder, again, that the judgment of God is an inescapable judgment. And that when God sets it in motion, one needs to heed the severity of that statement that God will judge. And so already here we have a lot to work through. But there's two phrases that I want to, just for you to think through as we consider this passage. Maybe there's only two phrases that you remember. I hope not, but there are ways in which you can hang this text. The first one I've already mentioned And it is simply this, the perils of leaving the pilgrim life. You see, Lot gave up the life of a sojourner, the life of a pilgrim here on earth, and he embraced urbanization. He left the life of living in a tent and living as a pilgrim to actually owning a house in Sodom. He moved from being a pilgrim in one journey to being an urban dweller in another journey. It's like he wanted to maintain dual citizenship. And so there's a a real string or a thread in these verses of what it looks like to leave the pilgrim life. And the second is a phrase. And it's simply this, what Sodom does to you. When we leave the pilgrim pathway, when we leave the covenant people, when we leave the land of God, so to speak, and we, we branch out into the world, that world has an impact on us. And so we think about that phrase then, what Sodom does to us. One man wrote this, he says, I suppose it's possible for a man like Lot to live in Sodom, but it's not very smart. And it takes us six chapters before we see the full implications of the decision that Lot made to leave the people of God and to leave the land of God and to make his way into the land of Sodom that apparently looked good but he had no ability to look past that to the moral reality of Sodom. Some of you who are familiar with your Bibles might recall the story of a man named Demas. When we first encounter Demas, he's among the believers in Colossae, and he's referred to there by Paul in Colossians 4:14. 4, but when we last encounter Demas, it's in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 10. And Paul there reports to us that Demas had left him because he loved this present age more and there are those who wonder um, was Demas really saved I think the best answer to that question was provided by A.W. Tozer who simply said the last time we see Demas he was walking in the wrong direction and that can be true of you that can be true of me it certainly is something that I've been thinking a lot as we've not gathered together over these last months and had opportunities to encourage one another and to bring one another back into the path of life. And it would be a tragedy to say that the last time we saw somebody nine months or ten months ago was that she was walking in the wrong direction. And finally, one more comment about this before we dive into the text is that uh, Andrew read from Second Peter chapter 2 verse 4. And of all that we're going to say about Lot, it's important to remember that three times in 2 Peter chapter 2, Lot is described as righteous. The word righteous is used to describe him. He is called the righteous Lot, or the righteous man, or his soul was, uh, or his, he was tormented, or he was being tormented in his righteous soul. It makes a point to tell us that Lot was a righteous man. And as I have wrestled through that, I think there's two ways at least that that is highlighted in the text. One is his treatment of strangers. Hospitality and the way you treat strangers can be either one of wickedness or one of righteousness. And Lot's treatment of the two visitors who were angels expressed or demonstrated his righteousness. And the second is when he confronts the men who want to ravage these two visitors that he's taken into their home. And he says to them, don't do this wickedness. There's awareness even in the Lot's um, um, being pulled into the life of Sodom that still this behavior is a wicked behavior. And I wonder if Abraham knew this about Lot. That's why he prayed as he interceded on behalf of Lot that God would spare the city if he even found five righteous people there. But it's something that we need to just at least think through a little bit. Some of the implications of a man like Lot being described as a righteous man. And that's, I need to be aware of my own sinful heart. That righteousness doesn't mean perfection. And that's a very scary thing sometimes to be known as somebody that's righteous before God, declared righteous because of our faith in Christ and being justified that way. But sometimes there can be such a discrepancy between the declaration of God upon us as righteous and our own sinful actions. And I think the second thing, that I thought about as I worked this through in my own head is the designation of righteous is not a ticket to sin. It's not a ticket to compromise. It is not a ticket to a life of any kind of joy or happiness. The only way to find true joy and true fulfillment and know the smile of God upon us is to walk not only as a righteous man, but walk in the way of righteousness. So we think about Lot. Let me summarize some of the things about Lot, some of the things from the text, and then I want to make three applications from the text. First, I want us to, at least for you to think about Lot's location. I've already referred to this. Um, He left the life of a sojourner and he fully embraced urban living in Sodom. It it talks a number of uh, of times how, how Lot went to live amongst the people or the cities of the plain, or in another place that uh, God destroyed the cities where Lot lived. Initially, he was living in a tent, but when we come to chapter 19, he invites the visitors into his house. So he had fully immersed himself in the culture of Sodom. He now had a house there, which obviously was a more permanent dwelling he had a position of authority there as he was sitting in the gate a place of judgment and a a place of recognition but all the while peter tells us that he was tormented in his soul by the morality of the citizens of the city secondly consider the actions of lot he was aware of the culture of the men of sodom He knew what awaited visitors. It was the common practice of these cities and particularly the city of Solomon, of what they would do to those who spent the night in in the city square. They faced the specific danger of homosexual gang rape. Lot was aware of that and so he quickly grabbed these visitors that came in and he compelled them to come and stay in his home. It's then that the Men of Sodom, all the men, young and old, everyone in the city, it says every man in the city came and knocked on the doorsteps of Lot's home or the door of Lot's home and said, give us these men. And Lot's initial response was a noble one. It was a right one. He went out to them. He closed the door behind them and he went out to them and he spoke to them. He said, men of Sodom, do not do this wicked thing. But when they refused, he does the unthinkable. He offers his own virgin daughters to them. And then as morning breaks and impending judgment is looming over the city, Lot hesitates to leave. It's like there's something about the city that's still attraction. There's something about the city life that he still wants to be there. Finally, he's literally dragged out of the city by the angels. And then that's not enough, because as he's going, Lot finally puts his foot down and stops and says, No, I can't go to the hills. I won't make it there. Let me stop somewhere sooner. Let me go to this particular city, Zor. It's just a little one. It's though as Lot is saying, I still want to have a little bit of Sodom in my life. Finally, he ends up in a cave with his two daughters, Two consecutive nights of wanton drunkenness or blotto drunkenness, so to speak. So drunk that he doesn't even remember what he's doing. And he has incestuous relations with his daughters. See, that's what living in Sodom does to you. That's what leaving the pilgrim life does to you. Consider Lot's relationships. He was among the leading men of the city, as we've always talked about, as evidence of his sitting in the gate as a city judge. When the men of Sodom come knocking on a door and he goes out to them, he references them as brothers. His sons-in-law, it would seem, would have been part of that horde knocking on the door. And when he goes to speak to his sons, it's very clear that they didn't take him seriously about the things of God. Because he warned them about judgment. They just laughed it off and thought he was only joking. His wife's heart was really in Sodom. In fact, when they were leaving, she turned around because she couldn't bear to leave the city that she loved. His relationships with his daughters give evidence clearly that while you can leave Sodom, Sodom does not easily leave you. That's what Sodom does to you. Consider Lot's end. I was thinking of this, and you you read these last verses of chapter 19, and it's just tragic. He leaves his uncle enriched by the blessing of God. So much does he have in his possession that he needs to part company with his uncle because they're fighting because they have so much stuff. But at the end of the life, as the last we hear of Lot, we find him alone in a cave. He's lost everything of earthly possession. So much stemmed from a single choice of his to leave the people of God and the company of God in the land of God and to go to Sodom. A single bad decision, if continued down that road, can lead to such utter ruin and destruction. That's what Sodom does to you. And then consider Lot's legacy. Lot's choice of the plain resulted in a loss of all his possessions and a tarnished legacy. His two Grandsons, or his two, yeah, his two grandsons. I guess that's what we would call them. Are Moab and Ammon, and we would see how Sodom flows through the veins of their blood too. From Moab came the Moabites, who were responsible for for one of the worst single acts of sexual immorality amongst the people of Israel ever on the plains of Moab. And then you have the Ammonites, and they worship the god Moloch from which we have the cruelest of religious perversions ever as they were the ones that offered their children as burnt offerings to their God. That's what Sodom does to you. The only insurance that Scripture gives us about Lot is that he himself was saved. As one individual wrote, I suppose there's nothing sinful in itself about a Sodom address, but it's stupid. And what is stupid can sometimes be tragic. Were it not be for the grace of God who answered Abraham's prayer to call or to actually drag righteous Lot out of the city of Sodom, he would have perished in that city. And were it not for the incredible um, grace of God exhibited through the Moabites, even for all their sinfulness as God um, had a woman named Ruth who left Ruth uh, or left the Moabites to go with her mother-in-law to go back to the land of Israel embrace the God of Israel married Boaz and from that relationship eventually came the line of King David it's incredible the mercy of God it's never easy living a life in a world or a city that's under the impending judgment of God we're in that situation now in the world in which we live. We are in the last days. Those days again being the days between the birth of Christ and the soon return of the Lord. Those days are described throughout the Bible and we are aware that the judgment of God is hanging over this world in which we live. Read the book of Revelation you can find that. It is not easy to live in a world that is under the judgment of God but it's possible. I was just reading earlier this week about Noah and Noah was the only righteous person. In fact, he was called a preacher of righteousness, and he lived in a corrupt world that was also under the judgment of God. So it's not easy, but it's possible. So as we uh, take these things about the life of Lot, let me pull from them uh, ways that, that we can maybe apply it and think about it in our own lives and the dangers that are presented to us as we are tempted to leave the pilgrim pathway. Or, what the world can do to us if we are stubborn about maintaining dual citizenship, citizenship in heaven and citizenship on earth, which is impossible to do. The first thing that I was wrestling through in my own head, and there'll be a bit of repetition here, but is living in Sodom can dull your witness. Lot had lost the cogency. Of his witness and by witness I mean the impact of your life uh, 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 um, among those whom which you live the impact of your life around uh, those who you are maybe there for their spiritual good our relationship with the world around us should be a continual point for reflection time and time I am reminded that this world is not all there is I struggle with my relationship with the world and the things of this world And I need to constantly remind myself that this world and all that is in it is passing away. And that fact should temper my relationship with the world. It should temper my my desire to become urbanized, so to speak. It should remind us that the things of this world, what we consume, what we pursue, what we love, what we accumulate, what we value, and yes, even where we live can be counter to the values and the relationships of the kingdom of God. The world's values and its morals and its ethics are polar opposites to the values and the morals and the ethics of the kingdom of God. As Paul reminds us, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't follow the course of this world. Don't love the world. This is a, a daily, if not hourly, battle that we face. To stay on the pilgrim pathway towards heaven and not take a bypath into the world in which we live. Think about your family. How are you leading them? What example are you setting? What are they seeing in you and hearing from you? All we can say about Lot and his family is his, his wife left her heart in Sodom that's where her affections were that's where her love was it's not necessarily all of Lot's fault but what was he doing in his relationship and how did that impact his relationship with his wife his daughters also were were those who left Sodom physically but we find them in the cave revealing that Sodom was still inside of them Lot's treatment of his daughters reflects on even how the morality of Sodom had seeped into his own heart And his own soul. And it would appear that Lot was trying to have have his cake and eat it too. He was trying to sit in the gate and be a judge amongst the Sodomites. But then he was trying to be a judge of the Sodomites as well. He called them his brothers. And yet we are only brothers and sisters with the people of God. His sons-in-laws, they thought he was joking when he told them about the judgment of God. His relationship had been so compromised. With them. See, these are the dangers of leaving the pilgrim pathway. And here in living color is an example of one who God puts before us as one trying to live as a dual citizen. A citizen of God and of heaven and a citizen of the world. I remember reading a long while ago, and this probably doesn't do it justice, but as we know, a boat is meant to be in water... But water is not meant to be in the boat. And it's the same of our relationship with the world. We are meant to be in the world. Jesus prays that we not be taken out of the world. So we are meant to be in the world as witnesses and as as those who shine as lights for God. But the, the world is not meant to be in us. And so we can clearly see, at least from Lot's life, how our witness can be so compromised by our choice. To leave the pilgrim pathway for urbanization in the world. That's what Sodom does to you. The second thing I was wrestling with is that living in Sodom can dull your sense of impending judgment. You see, you work through these verses as we've read them. And you might on your own now go back and visit them. And you realize that it's only the angels, the two angels, that took the judgment of God seriously. see, Lot's sons-in-laws heard about the judgment of God and they just laughed it off. This is a joke. There's no chance that this world is going to be destroyed. Our world's going to be destroyed by fire. Come on, Lot, you're kidding us. Look at where we live. Look at how beautiful it is. Look at how our commerce is flourishing. Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed by the judgment of God. Not a chance. But then we wonder, did Lot even take the threat of judgment seriously? After all, he had been entertaining angels in his home, and they had warned about the, the impending judgment that was, that was only hours, if not minutes away. And we wonder, well, had he lost his de- sense of divine fear by having lived in Sodom? After all, it says that when they said, you got to get out, he hesitated. He hesitated to the extent that, that were the angels not have dragged him out of there with his family, he would have burnt under the fire sent from heaven. And didn't he beg for a spot that was closer than the hills? Just a little town. Again, I think it's like him saying, well, I'm just not fully ready to leave this. I don't know if I can let it all go. It's maybe not all that bad. And then his wife disregarded the words of the angels. And she looked back. And she was turned into... A pillar of salt possibly she didn't think that the judgment of God was a real thing either as I've already mentioned loved ones we live in a world where judgment is hanging over our world there is a day of judgment that has been set by God the Bible tells us this again and again and again it says the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be turned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The book of Revelation clearly describes this last age which culminates of all the judgments that take place on this great last day of the Lord. This day of judgment is the great white throne judgment. But the world mocks. The world questions. The world ignores any notion or thought of a coming judgment. This is how Jesus describes the last days in which we are living. This is what he says. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. That is the days when the Son of Man is about to return. It says they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. What Jesus is saying is that no one's taking it seriously. No one's giving a second thought to the fact that the world in which we, is in, we are in is under judgment. Life is going on. It's going on in all the ways that, that suggest it's going to go on forever. People are getting married and they're giving themselves in marriage. There's not a care in the world. Right until the moment when Noah and his family walked into the ark and they shut the door and the rain started coming. Then he says, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. You see what Jesus is saying? He says commerce was flourishing. Plans were being made for the future. Properties being bought uh, drawings being drawn up for buildings uh harv- or fields being planted for a harvest right up until the moment when lot reached zor and then fire fell from heaven and then jesus says so it will be on the day when the son of man is revealed remember lot's wife he says whoever seeks to preserve his wife life will lose it but whoever loses his life will keep it i tell you In the night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and one will be left. see, the Bible again reminds us that the judgment of the Lord is certain, but it will take so many people by surprise. And so I asked myself and I asked you, so how are you living? Are you taking seriously the reality that This world is passing away, and that at any moment a trumpet could sound, and Christ will return, and judgment will be carried out upon this world in which we live. How does it shape our thinking? How does it impact our living? And, loved ones, why would we ever want to embrace a world and a culture that's passing away? Well, because it's appealing. Loved ones, the testimony of Scripture is consistent, though no, God will judge sin. He will te- judge it tempor- temporally, and He will judge it finally. What I find fascinating as I was reading through the text on Sodom and Gomorrah, and there's about 20 references to it throughout Scripture, is that there is a distinction between God's temporal judgment and God's final judgment. And by that I mean God's tolerance for sin has its limits, both individually and nationally. God will act against sin. He will do it sometimes in time and space and where we live now and he will judge sin and he will discipline his people for sin. But there is a final judgment as well that is coming at the end of this age. And listen to what scripture says. And this is where this application of thinking about Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19 is so important for us to work through. Jesus says to a city called Corazon, woe to you, Corazon, woe to you, Bethsaida, For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for them in the day of judgment. In other words, there was a temporal judgment that Tyre and Sidon experienced for their behavior. But there is a day of judgment coming when the final judgment of God will be meted out. And then he says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Those are, those are words that should cause us to stop and think. In other words, Jesus is saying, if Sodom saw the things that I have done, they would still have remained. The judgment of God wouldn't have fallen on. They would have repented. And so you think that it was bad for them temporarily. Well, it's going to be worse for you in the final judgment than it will be for Sodom and Gora. This is a side I'm intrigued that God has middle knowledge. It's a whole topic of study in itself. But God knows the actual outcome of every single division, decision that would ever be made had we gone this path or that path. He knows them all. But he's determined a specific direction for us. The main point of all of this is simply. Living in Sodom and embracing the world. Will numb me to the judgment of God. That will finally come. At the end of this world. And the last point is. Along those same lines. And we'll use some of the same verses. Living in Sodom condole your sense of the magnitude of sin. We all have hierarchies of sin. Unfortunately, they don't often match up with the Bible and its view of sin. For many, the judgment of God upon the cities of the plain is indefensible. And they would argue it's difficult to explain the Uh, we would have a hard time explaining to them why God would judge a place like Sodom and Gomorrah and whose right is it for God to do that anyhow? What right does God have to do that? Well, Genesis 19 is not a surprise. There are hints that we've reached a point of finality when God says enough is enough when in chapter 13 we read that there is a time when God did judge them and we also read that the men of the city were wicked terribly wicked and when we read that the outrage from the victims of the individuals in Sodom and Gomorrah were such that it had reached heaven it was an incredibly beautiful and productive land we realized that the common grace was upon that land and, and the fact that it was a land physically like Eden and like Egypt very productive but a few late verses later, again, as I said, we read, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So there's an obvious connection here between the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the fact that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were great sinners against the Lord. And as we read through this, the, the path of judgment is not a knee-jerk reaction or sort of an out-of-the-blue um, reaction of God to what was going on there. As I've already said, there's the revelation of of just God in nature to them, as we have around us. God was not hidden from them. The the wisdom of God, the divine attributes of God, the imagination of God, the creativity of God was seen all around them on the plains as they witnessed the beauty. As I said a number of times, it was described like the Garden of Eden. And the Bible tells us again and again, the heavens declare the glories of God. So God had displayed His glory for everyone to see it. Secondly, there was a gift or an opportunity that God had given to the people of Sodom to realize that there was another way, that there was a God, that there was a a God of righteousness. And you might remember that the king of Sodom um, had come to reclaim all that had been taken from him, that Abraham had saved. And he had heard as he sat amongst this discussion with Abraham and the the Melchizedek, the king of, um, or the priest, the high priest before God and the king of Jerusalem or Salem, He heard about the power of God. He heard the descriptions how God had enabled Abraham to deliver uh, these great armies and all the goods they had captured back into the hand of Abraham. The king of Sodom had an opportunity there to hear and he did hear about the grace and the mercy of God. They had in fact experienced the salvation of God but they rejected it and turned their backs on it and they ignored it and they had the gift of time. There was a great deal of time that had elapsed between the time that they received all their goods back and the time that the final judgment came. They had an opportunity and a time to repent. But the Bible describes them as great sinners against the Lord. And so here the question is, then, well, whose are we? Where do we come from? Who owns us? Well, the answer is we're gods and we're created by God and we're created in his image and we are to act as his image bearers and we are to respond to the direction that God sets for our life and the revelation that God gives us about how we are to live. I don't know how God communicated this to the people on the plains, but we know that God communicated his will to Adam and Eve. Don't eat this, you can eat that. We know that Enoch walked with God. We know that Abraham pleased God and he was a preacher of righteousness. So there's clearly evidence that God made himself known and how one should walk in it. And God had proclaimed that message through his servant Abraham. So there were ways that God had made himself known. But the sin in Sodom was a great sin. You can read about it in verses four and five. You can read about it in Ezekiel as Ezekiel adds to the sexual sin of the people of the plains also the fact that he says there this was the guilt of your sister sodom you had pride excess of food prosperous ease did not aid the poor and the needy and as a result of all that sin what the bible says a couple times is that god went down to see if the outcry was justified in other words i think what that reference is too is that every time you sin somebody gets hurt every time there is no such thing as a hurtless sin and so I believe what the outcry here is that the outcry is of the victims of the sin of the people of Sodom the outcry of the sexual sin the outcry of the of the lack of sharing of their property and the outcry of their excess food the the poor and the needy those that had been humiliated the defenseless the weak the vulnerable the helpless their outcry had gone up to heaven and God actually had come down to judge the sin against those individuals. God is a God of justice and he defends the defenseless. We even read of Lot that it says he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. But we see the in fact and we've said this a couple times how the sin of Sodom impacted Lot to the point that his whole morality was skewed. The thing that we need to think about though is that Sodom and Gomorrah become a simile for describing our attitudes towards sin. And often now you will read in the Bible that it says they were like Sodom or they were like Gomorrah. In other words, the bible moves from the specific sins of these cities to talk about sin in general and ultimately about our attitude towards god and our approach to sin and here's where as we make this shift we need to let go of our own prideful offense of the sins of others and look into our own hearts it's so easy to look at sodom and gomorrah and 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 show um disdain and 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 show a sense of sort of moral outrage towards what took place in The cities of the plain there. But not look in our own hearts. And in fact that's what the prophet Ezekiel did to the people of Israel. As they were in their rebellion against God. He says listen. Your sister is Sodom. And that would have been a massive offense to the people of Israel because what Ezekiel was saying to them is your sin is as bad as the sin of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's why I say we need to be careful about our hierarchies of sin to say, well, this sin is up here and this sin is down there. We don't understand that. All sin is a sin against God. And what we in fact find in the New Testament is that unbelief is a greater sin against God than what the recorded sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were against God. Here are the words of Jesus, warning those who reject the good news of the kingdom of God. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave a house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah for that town. you understand what he's saying? There is a greater judgment that falls on those that reject truth and revelation about christ than those that were engaged in the sins that are described of sodom and gomorrah he says the people of capernaum witnessed miracle after miracle evidence of the power of god they were witnesses to the mighty works of god and yet they rejected christ and you, Capernaum, will be exalted to the heaven. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have been reigned, remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. One commentator that I was reading after talking about the incredible light that we have today compared to the moral and spiritual light that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had, wrote this. Imagine if some of the fellows from Sodom and Gomorrah could come into, and I'll use our morning service, a few months back when we were actually meeting. Can you imagine one of them stopping by the pew in front of you, pulling out a hymn book, leafing through it and finding some of the hymns of the church, maybe some of the ancient creeds that we have in the back of our hymn books? And he might say, my, we didn't have this. He might pull out one of our ESB Bibles that we used to have under our chairs, flip through it, and then turn to you and ask, you have this in your own language? No less. True, they didn't repent of their perversions or of their heartlessness, but what about you? What about me? We have the full data on Jesus Christ. We have thousands of years of interpretation we have evidence of who he was in full display in the complete revelation of God to us and yet people refuse to lay hold of him consider we just came through Christmas we heard about the gospel again and again over four or five weeks that is in the gospel story We know who Jesus was. He was the Word. He was God who became flesh and he came to live among us. We know why he came. He came to redeem us from our sins. We know that God sent him because he so loved us that he didn't want us to perish in our sins. We have heard all of the wonderful names of Jesus or many of them over these last four or five weeks. And you can have all of that, the gospel fully explained or explained in Christmas. We can have all the advantage of that, all the knowledge of that, all the wisdom of that, and yet refuse to repent. Jesus says, if Sodom had all of that, all of those advantages, it would have repented. There's many things to work through this passage then, loved ones, through the eyes of Lot. What it reveals about God, what it reveals about humankind, what it reveals about sin, what it reveals about the world. Yeah, the place I want to end, and I know I've gone a little bit late, you can watch this on 125 speed if you want. But the whole ordeal began with Abraham standing before the Lord in intercession, pleading with God to, that God would act justly in his judgment towards Sodom and Gomorrah because God, in fact, was the judge of the whole earth. Abraham found himself on a horn, horns of a dilemma. How do I pray? Have you ever found yourself in one of those dilemmas? How do I pray? See, on the one hand, if God is holy and God is righteous and God is judge, just, he has to punish sin. But on the other hand, would it be just for God to destroy the righteous and the wicked together? And as we know, Abraham really was concerned about his nephew Lot, who was living amongst the people of the plains, and he was pleading before God to be merciful to Lot. And so then when we find Lot in verse 27, up early in the morning, it says early in the morning he went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. The exact place that he had stood only hours earlier, pleading with God to be merciful and to be just. He looked down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I thought of this, the same Nebuchadnezzar, who when Daniel had been thrown in the lion's den, and he had no idea if the lions would eat him or not, he got up early in the morning and says, Daniel, are you still alive? As Lot looks down towards the valley, he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like smoke of the furnace. And I wonder what filled Abraham's heart at that moment. I doubt that looking down at the plains at that moment, he had any inclination that Lot had survived. But I wonder if he looked down with faith and trust that God would have answered his prayer. Because then in verse 1929, it says, so that it was. When God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. What did he remember? He remembered his covenant with Abraham. He remembered Abraham's intercession. And then it says, and he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Abraham or Lot had lived. What an amazing phrase. And God remembered Abraham. Loved ones, I don't think there's ever a time when we ought to give up praying for somebody. I don't think there's ever a time when we ought to doubt that God is able to answer our prayer. Oh, he might not answer it in the exact way that we ask it, but he will blow us away in the way that he does answer it. Because not only did God judge Sodom and Gomorrah, but God also rescued Lot, but God also was merciful to the people of Zerar who he had intended to destroy, giving them further opportunity to repent. Our God is an amazing God. May we never give up praying and pleading on behalf of our children and our grandchildren, those that we knew went to our church and were part of our church, that God would yet be merciful to them and bring them back into the pilgrim pathway. Father, we thank you for your word today. Help us, I pray, as we work through this passage on our own. Spirit of God, um, help us to make sense of it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.